Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. I'm just back from the uh, 2018 Investigators Conference in New York. was able to connect with some um, old friends that I haven't seen for a while and made some new friends. It was a fabulous time. Also, the uh, midterm board meeting for the National Council of Investigating Security Services. So, back back home, back on track, and here we are. And I have my guest today, Kelly Corey. Hi, Kelly. Hi. Good morning. Good morning. Um, Kelly is an investigator from Southern California, and we're going to be talking today about really understanding our clients, an important little <laughs> objective for all of us, for sure. So, uh, so Kelly, what are you up to today besides being on the show? Oh, well, yes, thank you. First of all, it's a pleasure and an honor, so I appreciate you having me on. Uh, it's just uh, another work day, um, so I will be going into the office and working on some cases, as usual. There you go. Very good. Um, <laughs> so, the, so the work of a private investigator is, is varied and uh, uh, pretty much 24-7, right, Kelly? <laughs> yes, it very much could be, yes. Yeah. So we're going to be uh, talking today about, uh, you know, understanding our clients, but let's tell us a little bit about you. How did you get to where you are today? Okay, sure. Well, um, I love solving mysteries and helping people and investigations are a good way to do that. Um, Also, I I hate not knowing things. So I just have this constant itch for knowledge and figuring things out. So (laughs) that works really well in this industry. Yeah, Um, sure. And yeah, and then um, my degree is in criminal psychology uh, from Purdue University, uh-huh. and uh, I guess that led me in, in this direction. And actually, um, my father claims that I was named after Kelly on Charlie's Angels, so I <laughs> guess it's, it, it was in my destiny from the beginning. That's funny. Uh, yeah, so, so what what made you decide in to major in criminal psychology? I always had an interest in the human condition and understanding why people are the way they are. And so psychology and sociology was a natural fit. At the time I went to school, I didn't know what I wanted to do with that. And actually, I moved out to California from Indiana to go to grad school uh, in psychology and then figure out maybe getting my PhD and, and teaching. But I wanted to work a year first and get residency. And so I was looking around for jobs. I found a position as a surveillance investigator for insurance defense cases for Crawford and Company, which was uh, an insurance agency that had an internal uh, investigative firm. Hmm. And so from day one on that, I just figured out, wow, this is, this is what I want to do. And so I did not go to grad school, and I just carried on with my career uh, as an investigator. And 15 years later, here I am. <laughs> it's funny how that happens. Huh? <laughs> so, what was it about working for the insurance company that you enjoyed? You know, it was, I never realized I could be an investigator and, until I was introduced to that position. And it seemed like my skill set and my background was really fit for that type of career. Mm-hmm. And it was something different every day. Um, I was doing insurance defense, so we were going out doing surveillance on claimants that there were obviously some red flag warnings of potential fraud 
or malingering or exaggerations, and they wanted to get to the bottom of what's really going on. And so going out in the field, being in a different city each day, and just documenting someone's activities and, and seeing if they are acting outside of their restrictions, it was really interesting because it was a mystery. It was a puzzle that you were trying to figure out. And I, I could see the, the benefit uh, in the long run of um, actually helping people reduce insurance rates because so much of our insurance costs goes to fighting fraud. For sure. So, Kelly, when you say acting outside of their restrictions, um, for people that aren't private investigators, what well, how would you describe that? Sure. So if somebody has a claimed injury and they say, let's say a back injury, for instance, and they, they say, I can't even lift my child anymore because my back pain is so bad. And then you go out and do surveillance and you see them carrying their child on their hip as they walk into Starbucks and you know, you know, they're not being quite so truthful on what their restrictions are. Or if their doctor says, hey, you can't lift anything more than 10 pounds, and then you go to the grocery store and you watch them carry a huge bag of cat litter out to the car, and you can go back in and get the, the weight off that bag and see if they're acting outside of their uh, doctor's restrictions. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So of the, perc- of the cases that you worked when you were with the insurance company, what percentage of those cases would you say turned out to be actual fraud? Oh, that's interesting. Um, I think there's, it's a category of um, fraud, malingering, exaggeration, and it's not really for me to decide what is fraud and what isn't. We leave that to the clients to sort out. But I would say by the time the case gets to an investigator anyway, there's so many red flags and, and so many inconsistencies that a large percentage of them could be. Um, mm-hmm. Of course, some claims that we get are legitimate, and after doing the surveillance, it's quite obvious that, yeah, you know, I think they really are injured, and they really are as injured as they say they are. Oh, for sure. Well, yeah, it's interesting. You're right, because the uh, number of cases you get are, are already skewed because there's suspected fraud, or you wouldn't be getting the case for surveillance. An insurance company is going to spend sure. the money to send out a surveillance investigator if they think the claim is legitimate. Mm-hmm. Okay, so yeah. so then um, where did you go from the insurance company? What happened then? Okay, so I, I was a field investigator, and I was assigned to train additional field investigators. And so uh, at that point, I was in the field training investigators and managing basically the Western District of the United States, so I was a field manager. And I did that for a long time until the company was bought out. And then I converted to a case manager and went in-house uh, where I managed a caseload of about 100 to 150 files while uh, overseeing and managing the California investigative team. So I did a lot of in-house working with the clients at that point. Um, I wanted to keep my hands in investigation, so I intentionally demoted myself and, and took another position with another company back as an investigator and um, I was actually the leading force in helping create a litigation support department at a large-scale investigative agency here in Southern California. Mm. And so that's where I really got my hands dirty and working on the research side of things. And how long ago was that that you went to that company? That would have been, let's see, I have, have my own company now for seven years, and I was with that company for four years prior to that. Okay. All right. So, so Kelly, what made you decide? I mean, you, you went from having a regular salary, uh, benefits probably, to 
launching out your own business where you don't have either one. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> right. Part of it's crazy, part of it's adventure. Um, I just really love doing investigative work, and I wanted to learn what I could and all facets of investigation while I could. Uh, it's really, well, at that time, and this dates me, you couldn't go to school to be an investigator and learn what to do. Uh, yeah. You had to learn on the job, and you had to learn from other professionals. And so I wanted to learn from the best as much as I could before setting off on my own because I knew once I did, I wouldn't have as many resources available to me uh, hands-on to teach me those things. So uh, I learned as many different avenues of investigation as possible. And um, actually, I ended up writing a training manual for some investigators uh, as well and, and some other educational articles. And I feel that the best way to learn something is to teach something. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've been doing that constantly. Yeah, that's really good. So, so tell me what your your thought process was for people that that might be interested in starting their own private investigation agency. What was your thought process, and what kinds of steps did you take uh, to launch your business? Oh. Sure. Well, learning how to do investigations and being very proficient at it is one thing, but the whole other half of it that you don't expect is running a business and being an entrepreneur. And I found a lot of wonderful resources. Um, I'm, as you know, a member of the California Association of Licensed Investigators, which is a fantastic Mm -hmm. organization. I highly recommend it to everyone. And also the Small Business Administration has been a tremendous help. So our taxpayer money goes to fund resources for the SBA. And so as a business owner, you get these resources free, I mean, your tax money, but you can go in and meet with mentors. They have workshops on anything from accounting to business formation and what type of entity you want to be to hiring employees to taxes the sky's the limit, and I would not be where I am today without that organization. Really? That's interesting. Yes, um, yes I'm familiar with them, too, and I've used them in the past, but uh, I've actually never had anybody on the show that has taken advantage of their services, so that's interesting. That's a, that's a really good tip. Oh, yes. And another little tip is the Small Business Development Center, the SBDC, uh, is more specialized, and they have business professionals from all walks everywhere that are highly trained, and they're at the top of their career, and they're giving back. And so I've worked with an amazing mentor on just getting my accounting in order. I don't have a background in accounting, but I was able to get my accounting so streamlined that I know exactly where I am at any time. I can do projections, which is really hard in this business. But she was a professor at Pepperdine University and has worked with uh, Fortune 500 companies her whole career, and yet I get her as a mentor for free through the SBDC. That's a, that is just a fabulous tip. Uh, so when you were working with both the F, uh, SBA and the other organization, were they surprised to be working with a private investigator? <laughs> Uh, yes and no. I, uh, several of them told me that I've never worked with a private investigator yeah. before. <laughs> and I just explained to them, it's just like any other service business. And once they see that, then they, they know how to, to deal with you and to work with you. And, and we are a service business. And I think you, it, it's beneficial to run our business as a professional business and, and to get the same resources. And a lot of things are transferable. That's uh, actually true. And was there any one or two things that you learned from working with this mentor in, in accounting that you'd like to pass on? 
Oh, wow. Um, it's very individualized. Because uh, my background was not business, I think it was just understanding how to set up my QuickBooks, for instance, because they give you all the bells and whistles you could possibly need, but you don't necessarily need all of them. And just help me streamline the categories into the, the right assignment and be able to uh, streamline my business processes, such as invoicing and tracking clients and rates and services, and then being able to run my, my records at the end of each month. Uh, boring accounting stuff, but it, it was definitely significant on how I ran my company. And, and ever since that we were able to get things in line, I, I feel like my business is just gaining momentum quite substantially. And, you know, billing is one of the probably one of the things that people have the hardest time getting done. So streamlining is extremely important, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the other thing that she taught me is to, you can decide, or if you, she gave me these algorithms and these calculations where you can figure out if a case is going to be profitable before you even accept it. And that mm-hmm. was huge for me because it's really hard to give a quote on an investigation because you don't know what you're getting into until you start digging. It's like peeling back the layers of an onion. You don't know how many layers are there until you get going at it. Um, and so being able to do some basic calculations on our internal costs, our overhead, um, any additional costs that might go into the case, we would have a better idea of what the budget should be so that we could quote the client before we even take the case. Mm-hmm. That's a really good idea. And is there, um, is there any secret sauce to doing that? I think it's very individualized for the business. It depends on what your rates are. If you use outside sources, uh, such as subcontractors or other professionals, and if you have employees that you have to pay, if you have an office or if you work from home. So it's really hard to say what the secret sauce is that would be transferable to other businesses. For sure. Okay. So um, looking back, so this is what you've had your business now seven years, you said? Yes. Looking back, what would you say was the most difficult thing you encountered? Wow. The most difficult thing I encountered while building Keystone Investigative Services. It it was all pretty difficult. But, yeah, learning the business (laughs) side of things was was definitely probably the most difficult. I knew how to do the investigations and, and saw just realizing I had to spend about half the time getting the business off the ground um, and I think for me, the challenge was not knowing what I didn't know, if that makes sense. I knew there were mm-hmm. things I, was, I did not know, and I knew I was unaware of what those were, and that was terrifying. So I just wanted to learn as much as possible so that I could figure out what those things were that I didn't know so that I could learn them. At least you had good sense to know there were things you didn't know. <laughs> I, think I think there's always, always things that we don't know <laughs> yeah it's always a pitfall when people think they know everything <laughs> oh yes yeah well that's what's so neat about this industry it always teaches you daily that you don't know everything because you're always going to get a case that's different they all have their nuances and you might not know the answer but you have to have the confidence to figure it out it's like well you know what I might not know the answer but we'll figure it out yeah, for sure. It's yeah, great. So uh, now you're seven years into it, which is, I'll bet time feels like it flew really fast. Yeah, it did. It's, it's amazing that we're here looking back at, at the progress we've made. Yeah. So, um, and how do you think the California Association of Licensed Investigators has helped you? Because you mentioned that. Uh, oh, my goodness. Has- yes. 
What a wonderful resource. Well, being connected with other professional investigators, being able to talk through scenarios, being able to help one another, uh, the educational opportunities are unsurpassed. Um, there's uh, training for our early license investigators that they offer. There's the conferences that are just so rich with information. I, I always leave with my brain swimming and pages and pages and pages of notes that I go home and, and try and implement everything. And it's, it, uh, there's a listserv where you're just always communicating with other investigators and, and just it's collaborative. And we're all colleagues. We might be competing businesses, but in a sense, I feel like everyone is a colleague and we're there to help one another. That's true. And you can ask a question that you may not have the answer to and, and draw on those resources as well, the, all those Absolutely. experienced investigators. Yeah. Okay. We're going to take a quick break, Kelly. We'll be right back We'll and okay. talk about understanding our clients. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-350. C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now. 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your questions. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1 866 472 5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to F R A N C I E at PIsDeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. I'm here with Kelly Corey. Kelly is a uh, licensed private investigator, California licensed private investigator from Southern California. And we're going to be talking about an article that I read that she wrote entitled Understanding Client Objectives. And this is an article in PI Magazine. PI Magazine, as probably most of you are listening know, is one of our 
great sponsors, Jim Nanos and Nicole Cusinelli, who I had just happened to see last week in New York, um, met Nicole Cusinelli for the first time, and uh, they're doing a fabulous job for their for their magazine. So Kelly wrote this article that I read and thought it was a great article. And uh, so let's talk about clients, Kelly. Um, okay. What do you do when somebody calls you with a case? Tell me what your steps are. Okay, great. Well, as I mentioned before, my diverse experience with various types of investigation have given me the opportunity to be able to see the case from a 360-degree perspective. And so whereas a client might call in and say, hey, I need surveillance, I will talk to them and learn what is it they're trying to find, what is the case about, what is their legal strategy, to be able to see if, first of all, that is the best mode of operative to find the information they need or to see if there's other supplemental ways to add additional information to give a more complete picture of the scenario. So it's a lot of understanding the client from the the get-go, who they are, what they need, and using my experience and insight to tailor an investigation specific to the nuances of their case. Okay, and are are the majority of cases where you get inquiry calls, are they domestic uh, kinds of cases, or what kind of cases would they be? Yeah, so at this point, I am mostly a legal investigator, and I work primarily with attorneys. And uh, so working directly with the attorneys that represent private clients or insurance companies or businesses, I very rarely get private clients at this point, but I wrote the article in context for all investigations. Uh And so the the first step would be identifying who is calling you. Is it an attorney? Is it a claims adjuster? Is it someone from human resources or is it a private client? Because they're all going to have different needs and different um, perspectives on how the investigation should be run. Uh-huh. I think it's a, an important distinction, Kelly, uh, calling yourself a legal investigator, uh, because I think mm-hmm. uh, it, it puts a different spin on the kind of work you're doing. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, um, what, kind of a, what kind of a case would an attorney call you with? So a lot of the cases that we get are liability cases um, or just someone suing each other for one thing or another. We Uh have plaintiff attorneys call us and we're doing discovery. We're building a case for them. And so those type of clients will want anything and everything. Uh, An example would be an auto accident. And so, for instance, in that type of situation, we have to work quickly. Uh, We'll go out to the, uh, the scene of the accident, take photographs, line of sight for the different drivers, We'll canvas for witnesses, canvas for surveillance footage that might have captured the accident on film. Um, We will then go out and interview the witnesses, serve subpoenas if necessary, do background investigations on all the parties involved. Um, Also, if it gets to the point where we're doing litigation further down the line, we could be doing an asset investigation to see if it even makes sense to sue the other party. we have, um, I have a, a wrecked motorcycle in storage right now as evidence for a case. <laughs> Do you really? So it's multifaceted, <laughs> yeah. Multifaceted and then all the way to the end after things go to trial, if, um, if let's say there was a runaway um, jury, then we get hired to do a jury survey. So essentially, we are front-to-back litigation support. And so a, a plaintiff side, a counsel, would have a need for building a case. A defense counsel is going to be trying to defend a case. 
And so we might be hired to investigate a claimant or someone that's filing a suit. And so that client is going to have different objectives. They're going to want to see, is this a career plaintiff? Or is this a career claimant? Are they um, committing fraud? Are they trying to shake down our client? Um, are they really as injured as they say they are? Let's get out there and do surveillance and see if they are. And so the directionality of the research is, is almost opposite. And so, um, hmm. so w- when you're talking about... Um, Red, I mean, red flags. What are your What are red flags when you're out doing an investigation of things that you might want to pursue further? Yeah, uh, it really depends on the case. A red flag uh, for a defense case would be obviously someone acting outside their restrictions, or if we do a background investigation and we see that they have filed. 15 prior workers' compensation claims, which I have seen. <laughs> have you really? Um, wow. I, I have. It's shocking. Or uh, let's say a medical malpractice suit. We were investigating a woman who was suing uh, a legal professional, and we were representing the uh, counsel for the legal professional's insurance. And we found that she did this regularly. She sued medical professionals regularly. She had tons and tons of lawsuits that she was plaintiff. So obviously this was something that she was making a career off of. Mm-hmm. And had she prevailed in some of the cases that you looked at? Oh, yes. Yes. I don't think she really? prevailed in our case, <laughs> however. That's good. That's great. And so we call those kind of uh, claimants vexatious litigants. Yes. So, um, and that often happens uh, in plaintiff cases. People file suits, both small claims and, and regular type lawsuits, uh, just mm-hmm. to for their income. It's it's interesting. Okay, so <laughs> so so knowing your client, and what kinds of clients would call you that you would not take the case. Uh, at this point, it's it's usually private clients for domestic matters. I have done quite a bit of that, but the way I've structured my company at this point in my life, I, I work Monday through Friday, 8 to 5, and, you know, domestic cases are outside that, and I kind of enjoy having a life outside of work at this point, and so I'm happy to give those cases to my colleagues, um, but if they need something such as a cyber investigation to see if... Maybe they're having an affair online, or if um, we need to do a background investigation um, for a custody dispute, or if we need to go out and serve subpoenas for other domestic matters, we do that. Mm-hmm. For sure. Okay. It's not so, running around in a car all hours of night anymore. <laughs> right. Exactly. So what kinds of questions do you ask your clients to make sure you understand the assignment? Sure. Um, and some, uh, some clients don't have the time to tell you. And so you have to do a little research on your own, especially if they're an attorney. You can always look up online what kind of practice they have. Um, but just a- asking them questions about, okay, what does this case involve? Who do you represent? Not only because that gives you the directionality of your investigation, but if they're mentioned on a traffic collision report, you have to properly represent yourself legally as an investigator of who mm-hmm. you represent. Uh, so asking them a little bit about the case, asking them if they have a copy of the traffic collision report, if they have copies of um, a deposition or interrogatories uh, or anything 
documented already by a medical professional and get copies of any of those that they have available. And if they don't have a traffic or police report to, to offer to do that as part of your investigation, because it's only going to give you more information about the case and help you unravel what they need and then how to go about getting that. Okay. And so uh, what kinds of, uh, what kinds of obstacles have you run into getting that information? Maybe say, Say you're talking to an attorney and they're just say, you know, I have this case. I want you to do it. Here it is. Go for it. What kind of obstacles do you run into? Because that happens a lot, doesn't it? Surprisingly. Yeah, it does. It it does. And um, you you get the attorneys that feel like they only want to give you the basic information to run with. They don't don't want to tell you everything. Mm -hmm. And I always say in my MCLEs that just like Magnum PI always said, if if it's a need-to-know basis, your investigator needs to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so maybe the limited amount of information that you get from the client, uh, that's always, always a struggle. Um, we'll set up the case. We'll go over the details. And if it's something we can't fi- figure out on our own, then we always go back to the client and ask quite quickly so that we can get, um, get ahead of the start on the um, investigation. Okay. So um, do you do... A- do you do a background investigation on your client? Sometimes, especially if it's a private client. And if it's something where you're approaching someone else or investigating someone else, you want to make sure that they don't have a restraining order against them because mm-hmm. you can't violate the restraining order for them. Uh, that's illegal. Um, but oftentimes we we work for some of the most well-known attorneys in Los Angeles. And, and so... Um, yeah, we, we check them out generally, but um, you, you want to know who you're working for. You def- I definitely recommend that. And how about cases that, uh, that come in that, say, if somebody wants to find their birth mother or their um, a long-lost girlfriend or in cases like that where you're, uh, you probably do some kind of locates like that? Does sure. that ever come up? So locate investigations, there's, there's different types. Um, we spend a bulk of our time trying to track down our clients' clients because the insurance company has retained counsel to represent them for something, and they don't yet know who their attorney is or that there's even a lawsuit out there. And so we need to get in touch with them and place them in contact with their attorney. And that type of locate investigation is very different because you can be direct with them and say, hey, look, this is why we're contacting you. Other locate investigations, you're trying to find someone discreetly so that you can either do surveillance, serve a subpoena, or they, you don't know how they're going to react because you're trying to find a birth parent or a long-lost boyfriend or girlfriend, like you say. And so you need to be a little more tactical with that because you don't know how that's going to go and you don't want to burn opportunities. So with a private client that's asking us to find a birth parent or a long-lost schoolmate, we have to also protect that individual that we're investigating because we don't know the intentions of our client. We have a bulletproof service agreement that says that they have to use that information legally and we're going to find that information legally. But at the end of the day, if they go out and kill that person, you still don't want that to happen. So protecting that individual. Our policy, and I think across the industry, the policy is if you're trying to locate somebody for that type of reason, that you tell your client that we will locate that person, but if that person does not authorize us to give you that information, we cannot give you that information. I have a form where that person can sign authorizing us to give that information to our client. 
But oftentimes the client will kind of bulk at that because they'll say, well, why am I paying you hundreds of dollars to find somebody if they just say, no, you can't have that information? Uh-huh. So what I tell my clients is draft a letter, say what you want to say to them, tell your piece. And if they tell us that we can't give you their contact information, at least we will be able to give them your letter. And then it'll be up to them if they contact you. And that way, they're satisfied that they get to say their piece. They get to make their contact, but we're not violating that other person's privacy. Yeah, it's very important. Uh, Privacy is a big concern for people today because our privacy is violated all the time. And so uh, that that is a good idea. That's a really good idea. That's um, that's, I wish I'd have thought of it. I hadn't thought of that. That's a good idea. Um, And I'm sure that must be received uh, well, probably by both sides. I would imagine. It typically is, yeah. Where initially we were losing cases because we were telling them, hey, we can't tell you their contact information if they don't authorize it. I thought, well, what's stopping us from bridging that gap and letting them say their piece and just write a letter? Mm-hmm. And yeah. since then, every single case we got. That's that's great. That's a really good idea. Um, and so... Do you have any stories about uh, situations you've run into that were a little unusual? Oh, my. <laughs> so many. Uh, in, in regards to locating investigations or? Uh, uh, regarding, in yeah, regarding, regarding locating somebody. Yeah. So I had a gentleman who wanted to track down his daughter. He and his girlfriend were teenagers and she became pregnant and the families, because they were both underage, decided, hey, you guys just need to part ways and go about your lives. And so 16 years later, he thought, you know, I I really just want my daughter to know that I didn't abandon her. I want to contact her and see if she wants a relationship with me. And he only had, like, vague information, like her first name. The He... (laughs) He thinks he remembers the mother's name. He knew the last name. He knew the street that she lived on. And that's all we had. Wow. And I was able to do some extensive research to find people with that last name that has ever used that street address. And as you know, someone under 16 is not going to have a paper trail. So we had to track the mother. And after months and months and tons of detailed research and cross-referencing things and going back to him saying, hey, does this this look right? Because he had a photographic memory. He was going to be able to recognize the house um, to try and track down where the mother used to live. And so then we could unravel um, a profile for her to try and develop possible relatives and then get a letter out to this potential daughter. And we did. And uh, we were able to, well, connect his letter to her. She did not want us to give him her information, but we were able Mm -hmm. to get his letter to her. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's neat. Do you, do you know if they ever made contact, personal contact? I, I'm still in contact with him periodically, and um, she hasn't. I mean, she's communicated through me. She claims that, yeah, he's not my dad. I know who my dad is. But I'm pretty confident in my research that it's probably just what her mother has told her. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think there's anyone else that could be the daughter based on, on the investigation. And so... You know, I think she's maybe in denial, but I, I know she has the letter, and maybe someday she'll decide to reach out to him. Hmm. Maybe they'll uh, both put their DNA into uh, Ancestry.com or one of those 23andMe or something to find out. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a big thing now. 
it for for sure. I, for sure, I have a friend that uh, uh, who's uh, who a close relative found out that he was the father of of uh, somebody, and he hasn't received it very well. So, <laughs> oh wow! Yeah. Oh my goodness! So that happens too. Unfortunately, um, people mm-hmm. sometimes don't want their past to surface. Uh, and they mm-hmm. don't want to get involved or so, something else has happened in their lives that they don't want to, to uh, affect in any way, any way, shape, or form. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's, those yeah, are hard. Yeah, I heard that I guess some cold cases are getting like solved that way, too, where family members are doing this, I want to find out my DNA, and they get in this database, and they're able to unravel that DNA to find a relative who was maybe a serial killer and then to be able to figure out who that person was. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's it's fascinating. What what it we're is. doing today is fascinating. Okay. So Kelly, we're going to take love it. another. We're quick, living in an exciting time. We are. We're going to take another quick break. We'll be right back with Kelly Corey. The internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com PI Magazine is the most respected magazine of the professional investigator. We feature stories and articles on current trends and issues, equipment reviews, tips, and practical advice. Don't miss the new and exciting year in PI Magazine. Subscribe today at PIMagazine.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest, Kelly Corey, is with Keystone Investigations. Kelly, um, before we forget, give your website so people can know uh, how to contact you if they'd like to talk to you more about your cases. Sure, Absolutely. So the company is Keystone Investigative Services, and our website is www.keystoneis.com, and that's IS like investigative services. It's just shortened, so keystoneis.com. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
And uh, you have a way to contact you on that website. And uh, so if people have specific needs, they can certainly uh, reach out to you. Yes, absolutely. There's a lot of resources on there. It has our contact information, uh, the type of work we do, services that can fit your needs. There's an online assignment form, and there's a resource with other articles and uh, that we've written, that we've posted, that we think are relevant to our clients. You mentioned the online assignment form. Uh, do people utilize that a lot? Is that something that's valuable for you? Uh, yes, they do use that quite often. It is a secure online form uh, that comes through encrypted. Uh, it gives them another opportunity to to give us an assignment. So we want to make it easy for them. They can call it in. We love talking to our clients. We prefer that. You can email it in. You can use the assignment form. You can fax it over. You can pigeon it over. <laughs> Whatever you want. But it just gives the client options. Okay. Okay. So, um, you have some other things you'd like to tell us about, so I'm going to let you take that and run with it. Sure. Yeah, and on that website, we have similar articles that might be interesting to our uh, listeners. Um, One is, information context is crucial to investigative value, which is similar to this, but it's a different direction. Uh, We have a lot of articles on information security and how to keep your smartphone secure uh, and identity theft victims resources. Uh, So I feel it's really good to not only talk about how to do investigations, but to reverse engineer it on how to protect people. Mm -hmm. And and I'm assuming that's been well received with your clients. Do they see that before they contact you or is it usually after after the fact? Uh, A little bit of both, actually. Yeah, some people will read the articles and then they contact us and then others want more resources and we have that to direct them towards. Okay, good. So... What kinds of situations have you gotten into? Oh, wow. Uh, so lots. <laughs> Anything from doing surveillance in back alleys of Compton to being on a beach somewhere watching somebody surf uh, and everything in between. I think probably the most interesting uh, geographical case I've had was in Wasilla, Alaska in a February when there's five feet of snow. <laughs> Great. I don't know what was more challenging, surveillance, uh, trying to videotape somebody when there's only about five hours of daylight or the fact that um, the locals had to dig me out of a snowbank in my car once a day. <laughs> <laughs> Definitely and, and- challenges beyond the normal investigation. And and what was your uh, reason for being there that they had to keep digging you out? <laughs> <laughs> we had two weeks of uh, insurance defense surveillance that needed to be conducted. I, I think the timing was maybe not the most appropriate, but that's when my boss sent me. Um, but it was it was exciting nonetheless, and it was when I was an early investigator, so I I was only 24 years old, and you had to be 25 years old to rent an SUV, which I think is silly in Alaska. <laughs> so oh, here I am goodness. in my, my sedan sliding off the road in the backwoods of Wasilla, Alaska. Um, yeah, it was very interesting. And um, yeah, it was, there were so many different things going on there. I was watching a house and meanwhile, the house next door um, apparently was a meth lab. And so I incidentally busted a meth lab at the same time I was doing an other unrelated surveillance. Um, How did that and I literally had to, what? How did that happen? I just because you're sitting there watching things in the neighborhood and you it became apparent what's going on and <laughs> so I had called the local authorities and let them look into it and they dealt with that. But um 
Yeah, it was also the type of scenario where I had to move my car every two hours because the active snow, I would literally be snowed in. It's amazing. So it was, it was a very interesting two weeks, to say the least. It got some good video. Nonetheless, my climate, um, his son actually slid off the road, and he was climbing underneath his truck to affix some cables to pull his son's car out of a ditch, and he wasn't supposed to be climbing around like that. So got some good wow. video of that. Wow, that's that's a great one. I've never had an experience <laughs> like that one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, unique situations. I think we've all had them. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, so yeah, there's other interesting cases along that line that that factor into these multifaceted investigations that we do, and it goes back to understanding who your client is and and what they need. Um, because they, they may call you with some preconceived idea of what they think they need. And surprisingly, a lot of clients don't know. They don't know what they need, and they don't know what capabilities we have. This is still uh-huh. kind of a, a very obscure industry, and they, they don't always understand what we do. Because you get clients that call, and they say things like that you obviously know they found on TV, and you have to tell them that's not real <laughs> or that's not legal. And uh-huh. so just not assuming that your client knows what they need or what we're capable of. It's so true. You know, I remember one time years ago, uh, our office received a call from uh, a business owner who wanted a background. Uh, He wanted a background done on his CFO. And uh, and the way he worded it, he wanted, he said he had talked to a friend who was a criminal defense attorney. And that's what the criminal defense attorney told him to do. Well, and so when I was talking to him, uh, and asking him questions, it turned out that I said, you know, you don't really need a background investigation. You need a fraud investigator. You need somebody to uh-huh. come in and check your records and do some interviews. And as it turned out, his CFO had built him out of about $285,000 <laughs> by oh, wow. diverting wow. funds, setting up a uh, a bank account under the same name, but not with a corporate name in Southern California and diverting the funds from Northern California to Southern California. So when the company thought they were supposed to be in the black, all of a sudden they were in the red and he couldn't figure out what was going on. Oh, interesting. A background Mm -hmm. investigation wouldn't have helped him a bit. Exactly. Yeah. And, you know, we have a case that's very similar to that, that I worked a few years ago that actually went over the course of several years because it was a convoluted case like that. And it started with, hey, we want you to do a background investigation on the manager of a casino. And this is a particular client that didn't give us a lot of information as to why and was kind of tight-lipped about the whole thing because it was very high profile. And so we did the background investigation. We didn't find a whole lot. We did find that he had some business affiliations. And then some time passed, and, and we were able to get some more information out of the client. And yes, it turns out they needed a fraud investigation. And so it ended up spiraling into this real live Ocean's Eleven style case where funds were being siphoned out of this casino. And after going in and reviewing books and interviewing employees and learning the process of how the chips are counted and they go to the cashier and they're counted again and they're documented and they go to the the safe and then the manager has to count them again and sign off on this paper it became apparent through the investigations and the savviness of this attorney who I am just in awe of watching him work. And we were such a great team working together um, that the manager was siphoning off $5 chips 
to the tune of millions of dollars. And it turns out, based on reflecting back to some of our prior investigations in the background, that it's likely he had a lot of debt from other gambling that he was using that to pay. And so it was a very interesting case, and it unraveled over the course of several years, and it was super fun to work. It's, that's fascinating. So it actually was a casino. And how, and how was he yes. siphoning out the uh, $5 chips? When he was having the cashiers count the, the, the number of types of chips, so they have the $1 chips, the $5 chips, the $100 chips, he wouldn't let them total them. He said, well, go ahead and write the total um, the amounts of each category, but then don't total up everything at the end because I need to count them again myself, and I'll do that. So then he would, like, um, alter the numbers in the $5 chips and then do his totals. And so it looked like the casino didn't make as much money, and he was taking that money himself. Interesting. Well, and you and I both talked about, you know, my husband, Randy, and, and uh, mm-hmm. he had a case where it was a, a similar thing. It wasn't a casino, but it was a similar thing. And the guy says, we're not just doing this to you, Randy. We're doing this to all kinds of people. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> of course, wow. Randy, Randy wasn't concerned about the other people. He was only concerned about his client. But, but, sure, uh, yeah. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. Yeah, some pretty spectacular cases, and that's what I love. It's just something different every day. You never know what the next phone call is going to be. That's for sure. And this particular guy, you were able to identify him? Was the company, the casino able to get their money back from him, or did they prosecute him? What happened? Yeah, so we usually don't get to see that side of everything, unfortunately. Occasionally, our clients will, will tell us what the outcome is. Um, but I, I'm not, I, I have a feeling that, yes, he was prosecuted based on the experience of the attorney we worked for and his background and the direction this was going. We turned over our evidence and our information, and, and they ran with it. And I haven't heard from them in a while, so I think it has resolved at this point. Hmm. So, so, yeah, the unfortunate thing is I don't always get to see the outcome of my cases, but occasionally we'll have a client that will call later and say, hey, guess what? This is what happened. Thank you so much. Yeah, for sure. Interesting. So um, the Ocean's Eleven case sounds like fascinating. How long did that go on? It actually went over the course of about two and a half years. Really? Really? Yeah. And was, did you guys put him under surveillance? Did you do a fraud investigation? Did you do forensic accounting? How, how did that resolve? Yeah, so there were a lot of elements at play there, and we we handled the background investigation. We did an asset investigation as well. Uh, we investigated some other parties that we thought might have been involved That as we were trying to drill down and figure out who was really the person that was the target, and then mm-hmm. we went in with the attorney and interviewed all the employees uh, in, in a fraud investigation, and uh, we didn't really tailor it as that. It was more of like a fact-finding operation because we were working on behalf of the casino, um, and they're representing their counsel. Um, but yes, they had some forensic accounting come in and do that as well. And uh, yeah, it's just, again, multifaceted. You've got to be able to see all angles. Yeah. It's amazing how, how small amounts count up. How ma- do you know how many hundreds or thousands of dollars he was able to get away with? Oh, millions. I, I think he was millions. close to $3 million. Really? Yeah. Yeah. It adds up quickly. I don't know if he got away with it, but <laughs> he did initially, but before he was detected. Yeah. Right. Yeah, a very interesting case. 
And do you know about how much he was stealing every day? Oh, um, it, it was probably in the hundreds, but it was yeah. it was very strategic. It was the five dollar chips because obviously the hundred dollar chips would be more noticeable, and mm-hmm. the one dollar chips would take you a heck of a lot of time to accumulate any wealth. But you know, it adds up. Uh, we had a case where the somebody was stealing quarters out of a bank vault. Oh my! <laughs> quarters, if you can imagine. But quarters, it adds up. that would take a while too. That takes a while for sure. Yeah, uh, but it it, <laughs> it does sound it adds like something up. out of the movies. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Okay. So, um, as you're uh, going through your case. Are you having daily communication with your client, you know, weekly? How, how do you do that part? We have a very hands-on approach. I'm from a small town, and that community collaboration uh, and care for one another has really taught me how I run my business. And so I, I communicate with my clients the way they like to be communicated with. Some clients want to be completely hands-off. They give you the case. They want you to run with it. You give them the results and the report at the end. We respect right. that. Other clients, we want to be with them through the whole process. And if it's a new client that has never used an investigator before or a private client, they, they get excited about what you find. And so we try and talk to them at least once a week and give them pictures and make it interesting and keep them engaged in it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we tailor that communication style to our clients, but I definitely do a, like a hometown um, personal touch, c- customer service style. Yeah, I think that hands-on approach is very effective, regardless really of who the client is, uh, even if you're mm-hmm. even if you're just updating with an email. And you know, Kelly, we're at, we're at the end of our hour. It's been fascinating talking to you. I haven't talked to you ever before, and so it's kind of been kind of fun just getting acquainted. I appreciate you being on yeah. the show. Oh, thank you very much. It's an honor, and I appreciate you interested in my article. Absolutely. And for those of you that are listening, it's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks so much for listening and tune in again next week when we'll have more stories from real investigators like Kelly Corey. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 